this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. So I'm usually telling you to avoid and earn out at all costs. And in this episode, I thought I'd give you the countervailing argument. And it comes from Dan Green. Dan Green started a company called The Mortgage Reports, and he had a great earn out. In fact, he ended up getting four times more for his business because he accepted an earnout than he would have gotten had he gone with an all cash offer. In this episode, I really want you to focus in on the way he vetted his potential acquirer, the the kind of spirit of the agreement he had in place, the difference between a buyer buying a feature or buying a core product, the way he vetted his potential acquirer, as, as well as the, the things his wife, the lawyer, insisted were on part of the deal. Uh, here on how to structure an earnout in your favor is Dan Green. Dan Green, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hi, John. So tell me about this business, the mortgage reports. What was the business model here? What were you guys doing? Mortgage Reports was in the business of lead generation. Uh, it was a mortgage advice website, and our uh, primary goal was to really just speak to people in plain language about mortgages, which is a very unsexy topic, uh, but it's uh, actually pretty important and pretty necessary for anybody who is you know, renting and think of owning a home. So we uh, provided uh, timely, relevant, non-biased advice and uh, with the hopes of generating leads for uh, mortgage lenders across the country. Got it. So um, you would put out articles on like whether you should have a fixed uh, or variable rate mortgage, uh, whether you thought you know, mortgages were going up in the long term or down, uh, you know, other things to think about. And then adjacent to that, you would have advertisers uh, who, were, who had sort of calls to action, major banks, I'm assuming, lenders, bottom lines. Actually, um, the first part is exactly right. Those are exactly the type of articles that we would write. Um, articles that um, really responded to what people were searching for in Google. Um, you know, what's the best mortgage for me? How does a fixed rate mortgage work? Um, is adjustable rate mortgages bad? Things like that. But we didn't run any ads on the site. This was a complete ad-free experience. And that was a, a crucial part of our image because um, it's hard to appear unbiased. Um, and neutral when you're constantly throwing up ads all over the it's site. Like the Bank of America logo and the oh, flashing on the right hand side. You, and and the way that uh, you know consumer sentiment can change so quickly. Um, you know you can have an advertiser uh, on your site and suddenly everybody is against that particular uh, advertiser and it reflects poorly on on the brand. Um, all of our revenue um, it wasn't from uh, sponsored calls to action. They were actually. Uh, we we built forms that uh, and spent a lot of time on optimization of our forms and and we would move people 
from a web page into a form and uh, and then connect them with uh, our partners on the back end. And those partners paid us directly for um, for the lead. And that was where all of our revenue came from. So, so for example, a mortgage calculator would be a form. Uh, even more specific than that, um, let's say you're reading an article about low down payment mortgages and you want to get more information about how you could um, you know, actually get a low down payment mortgage. And so we'll say click here to um, to get today's rates. And uh, you would provide some basic information about yourself. And uh, several seconds later, your phone would ring. And that would be one of our partners who are paying for the privilege to speak to the reader. Got it. And I've always wondered how the back end of these things work. Is there some sort of marketplace that people are bidding for those leads, the major banks or have some sort of dynamic marketplace? Or are, like, how did the back end work? How did you get the lead to the right bank or like right financial institution? Um, there are marketplaces, um, and uh, however, those are generally what we call click-based marketplaces where there's no uh, personally identifiable information that's exchanged between the reader and the bank. It's generally somebody clicks um, and they're whisked away to somebody's site, and, and those banks will bid for the right to talk to whomever may be on the other end of the phone. Um, for us, we were gathering more information. We knew a little bit more. We knew the um, what size loan they wanted. We knew whether they're buying a house or refinancing. We knew a little bit about um, you know their zip codes, et cetera. And so um, we would have personal relationships. And you you know you you actually you have business development that that goes ahead and speaks to a bank and says, look, um, when we have a customer who meets these parameters, uh, do you want them? And they would say yes, and the price would be negotiated. And, um, you know, it was our job um, as the company. What we would do is to optimize getting the, the right customer to the right bank at the right price uh, every time. And, and that's, you know, that's optimizing your revenue. And so how long would it take between the time the person fills out the form and the time they get, you mentioned it was seconds. So these are pre-negotiated uh, agreements that you said when, when, when the criteria are, uh, these three criteria are met, we will buy that lead from you at this price. That's exactly right. Got it. And so, give, I mean, you don't have to get into specifics, but like ballpark, what are we talking about on a cost per lead? Are we talking hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars? Um, it, it really depends. There are some leads um, that have a value of $1 or less. And that may be um, somebody whose information um, on the surface, it looks like they're highly unlikely um, to be approved for a mortgage. Because, you know, you remember on the, on the other side of the transaction, this is there, you know, a mortgage lender is paying for customer acquisition. And so if the, it doesn't matter to acquire the, the lead, um, if it's not going to convert into actual business. So, um, the lower the probability of a closing, um, the less the value, the lower the value of the lead. So, um, you'd see some that were for a dollar or less. And then on the other side, you'd, you'd see some that were, you know, for a hundred dollars or more. It really depends on the, um, on the type of, uh, of lead that is being generated at that particular time. Got it. And so you've 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 got this revenue stream. You're getting f you know funds. You're selling these leads essentially to these financial institutions. I mean, how how big did you get the company in terms of revenue, top line revenue before you you went to sell it? Uh, the in the year before it sold, um, we were we were doing uh, seven figures of revenue. Um, it took some time to get there, but we the growth was very fast. Um, you know, and this is this is something that um, just from a, a business development standpoint, you know, there's two ways that you can go ahead and you can get customers in uh, lead generation. One is you can 
plaster the internet with ads and kind of sucker people into clicking. It's a great way to make money this month, right? Um, but it's not a great way to sustain your business long-term. Eventually the competition gets too high and you lose customer trust. And, and besides, um, there's two parts of your transaction. You have to not only, um, you know, when you're just going for clicks, you have to not only um, get your readers to click as often as possible and you get into more and more fanciful tactics to do that. And anybody who's been online, um, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where these ads are all, you know, borderline offensive to your intelligence. But then on the other side, you have to have the people who are going to buy the leads. And so um, if your site, if your website is constantly generating garbage leads, um, people who, who are not uh, in any way qualified or committed to the transaction, um, the, the, the customer, you know, your buyers of leads aren't going to want them anymore. They're going to say, well, this site um, constantly generates garbage. I, I'm not going to buy anything. So, um, you know, it was a conscious decision for us to always, you know, make sure that we spoke in plain English. We talked to, we talked to our readers, um, we treat them with intelligence, um, and we generated a lot of high intent leads because of how we treated our customers. These were, these were good leads. And they continue to be good leads. And so um, it took us some time to build up, but you, you know, suddenly you have a reputation for, um, for having a high quality product. And our revenues jumped quickly, not necessarily because we were getting more leads or more traffic, that, that was happening, but we were able to command a higher price for the product because the product was of such high quality. They were we seeing the conversions. That, mm -hmm, and we, you know, we, we earned our reputation um, for being a, a you know, having terrific products. How long did it take you from startup to, to, uh, to the seven figure mark? Um, I, you know, I'll have to answer that in two parts because, uh, for a long time I was a loan officer, uh, when I began the site and this was a tool for me. Um, I used, uh, it was a blog, right. And it was a, a way for me to communicate with my customers when I couldn't be in front of them. It was my marketing tool. And I had a, a form on the site for, you know, Hey, um, if, you know, if I can help you with anything on your mortgage, fill out this form. And I'll get back to you. And um, after about three or four years, I started noticing. You know, I would get I would get requests from people who were in states that I was not licensed in which to lend, and I'd send them a polite email. Hey, thanks so much for writing. I, you know, I can't help you. Um, and that began to happen more and more frequently. Where suddenly, you know, you, know, you only have so much capacity as a as a single uh, loan officer, or, or to share leads among your office. And uh, it was right around that point when I was having um, a handful of leads hit the floor every day, qualified, good customers on paper, that um, I was approached by a, um, a lead buyer in the space who said, um, hey, um, you know, we're, we really like what you're doing over here. It looks like you're collecting leads. What do you do with the customers who, um, who you can't help? And that actually was the, you know, the website itself had existed for a few years, but it wasn't until um, I started reaching out to other companies uh, that, you know, the business began. And from there, it was about two and a half or three years. Um, and we were from, you know, that, that's when we got to the, uh, to the seven figure mark. Got it. Got it. Nice run rate for sure. Is it just out of interest? Is there a difference between a loan officer and a mortgage broker? Are those the same thing? I, uh, you know, <laughs> The blanket term is mortgage lender, and that encompasses anybody who can help you with your mortgage. Uh, a loan officer is typically an individual person who uh, is licensed and um, who will walk you through, your, you know, is licensed to quote mortgage rates and to walk you through your paperwork. Um, a mortgage broker um, 
can't, you know, may also be a loan officer. I mean, there's a semantics thing. Um, people use the terms interchangeably and that's absolutely fine. Um, sometimes I get a, you know, I get more technical just because, you know, I get technical. Got it. So you crest the seven figure mark. Um, I mean, what made you want to sell? <laughs> I had, there comes a point when, um, for me, I realize what are the things that I love to do and what is it that excites me? And, um, the revenue was very, very exciting, but, um, there was also a ton of regulation that, um, had been put onto uh, the mortgage industry as a whole. And it was for the business. Um, there was a lot of work that would have to be done in order to grow the site from where we were to where it was headed, even, you know, even if I walked away to, you know, to where it was headed, there was a lot of work. Um, a lot of it was, um, regulation. Um, a lot of it was shoring up administrative tasks and things that, um, I just, I don't love to do. And so my options, I mean, I, I went and I talked to, um, one of my, uh, one of my best friends growing up is, um, with a hedge fund and he's, uh, he's very successful and, you know, he kind of laughs at some of the, some of the issues, you know, cause he deals with it every day. But like, for me, I, I said to him, I'm like, look, here's where I am in the business. And in order to move ahead, I'm going to need to invest X amount of dollars. I'm like, I'm okay doing it, but this isn't where my strength is. And I don't love to do it. And he says, go get an investor, you know, go hire this amount of people and, you know, and build out. And then you can be at 10 X and, you know, in three years. And he's giving me this whole plan I'm listening to. And I'm like, Logically, that makes a lot of sense, but that wasn't, you know, at that time, that wasn't where my, where my heart was. I didn't want to take, you know, a year to, um, to be deep in these things that I don't love to do. And so as I'm looking around, I said, you know, this is probably a pretty good time to explore what my exit, you know, what my exit options are, because in order to get where this business is going, I'm just not the guy to take it there. Um, I love it. And I, I love this business and the industry. But I knew where, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to have my heart in that part of growth. So you, you'd kind of bootstrapped it, uh, like kind of duct taped the whole thing together. And you knew that, as I, I mean, I'm trying to summarize what you're saying, but you kind of got a sense that to get it from a million to 10, um, you got to rip up the duct tape and actually put in some proper foundation, put in some process, you know, get, get the thing kind of professionalized. And, and that's just not your sweet spot. Am, am I getting it right? It, that's a, that's a part of it. The, the other aspect was just about compliance and regulation. And I, you know, I, I just, I didn't want to find the business suddenly on the wrong side of, um, of a consumer law. We weren't doing anything, you know, wrong. I, and I'll start by saying, you know, we were, we were upfront and we followed all the regulations and that, you know, to me, that first and foremost, that's everything that, you know, being in compliance is not something, you, you know, that you do because it's required by law, but it, it's just, it's just how you play and, and it's ethical. And this is the way that you treat your business. It's a, it's the very first thing because just like having an insurance policy, one, um, it's there to protect you in case something goes wrong. You know, you followed all of the procedures, you've done it all correctly. And so, um, in the event that there's a catastrophe, um, I didn't want to ever have to, you know, suddenly overnight we're shut down because, um, you know, there, there's somewhere down the road, you know, one of the leads who we connected with one of our banks, somebody loses their house and a lawsuit chain goes from bank to bank and ends up with us. And for something that, you know, we weren't doing anything incorrect. So 
Is that a, a, a more clear explanation? I didn't want to be on yeah. the wrong side of the law. And um, there was so much work that would have to be done in order to um, prepare to future proof with all the regulation coming. Yeah, no, it makes it makes complete sense. Uh, I get it 100 percent. The um, I, I wonder as well, you know, what role size had had to do like as you grew larger from a hundred thousand in revenue per year to a million dollars in revenue per year like what was it about being 10 times larger that made you kind of more concerned about regulation and then when you looked at being 10 million dollar business that you thought that the regulation hurdle was just even that much more uh something that you weren't willing to like what was it about growing that you felt like you were more exposed to potential regulation issues? Um, I, I think the premise here is that a bigger company is more likely to get noticed. And, and that, that really wasn't it. I was just watching headlines. Mm. And um, there was a, you know, there's a government group that is there to protect consumers from, from wrongdoing in financial markets. And, um, and a lot of the uh, stories or headlines that I read with insider knowledge on, you know, how things really work um, was that it was guilty first and then you've got to prove your innocence. And that's yeah. a very, very high cost. You know, if the government, if the government points its, uh, you know, focuses on, on your business, um, it's very, very expensive um, to defend that. And if you don't have, uh, if, if you're not going above and beyond every day to make sure that you're doing everything the right way, um, it's hard to, um, yeah, you know, goodwill doesn't get you very far when, when you know, when you're under the microscope like that. I, I was, I was just concerned seeing where things were going. Was there also a sentiment that that the more the business grew, the more, more chips you had on the table? Um, yeah, you know, it, this this was, you know, this was a single person operation for a very long time. Um, I didn't have employees, um, you know, at risk. Um, it was really just me. Um, we're, you know, the business was incorporated and I never, you know, of course, you know, you're not going to pierce the corporate veil and I had good advisors and good attorneys. Um, but you know, again, um, it's just that idea that your phone rings one day and they said, Hey, you know, this, this happened and we want to talk to you about, you know, your process. So no employees, uh, no significant, I mean, like what were your expenses against the, the million bucks in revenue? Uh, web hosting. I uh, had some contractors from time to time, um, but there, there really weren't much at all. Man, this was a profitable little cash cow. Yes. Yes, it was. And, you know, it, it was time, a lot of time and a lot of effort. And, you know, we were, uh, it wasn't a set it and forget it type business. There was, um, there was a lot of effort day to day, but um, the returns were very good. Did you also worry that Google would change its algorithm and that it would take you time to kind of re- you know, restructure all of the, this, you know, natural search listings. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about, um, Google and, and what it may or may not do. What I knew was that we were writing, uh, quality, uh, content consistently. And the thing that Google has gotten very good over the years is determining, um, what is actual real content, um, in, you know, in 2005 and 2006, when, you know, you could keyword stuff a page. Um, to get to get rankings, and a lot of businesses relied on that. But I'll tell you that every time that Google came in and did an update and and tried to filter out the garbage, that only helped us. I I was empowered by uh, Google's move uh, and, and what it still does uh, toward 
surfacing um, high quality content that's actually usable online. And and that's where I always focused. Yeah, it's funny. You, like on this show, I often interview people and I, and they'll often refer back to the Panda update from Google. I think it was called Panda. I don't follow this yes. very well. Yes. But it was like a Panda update. And, and they went from having like a business on Monday and then no business on Tuesday. Like literally, like it was like the lights went out. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a problem. Obviously not in your case because you were you know, generating new content. So you make the decision to sell. Um, walk us through the next step. I mean, did you hire an M&A professional? Did you try to market it yourself? Like what, what, what were the next practical steps? Uh, the, the first call I made was to um, my old high school friend who's at the hedge fund. And uh, he told me I shouldn't sell, right? He told me that, that I should um, find investors and, um, and go and double down, right? He's like, look, the amount of money that you're going to put in, you're going to come out way ahead. Um, and it just wasn't really what I, what I wanted to do. Um, so I, I was chit chatting with a friend of mine. Um, I, would you like, can I, can I shout him out? Yeah. Give him a plug. Yeah. For <laughs> so sure. he's, he's, a, uh, he's an EO guy. His name is uh, Mike Simonson. He runs out research, uh, in, uh, in, uh, Palo Alto. So they're a real estate data firm. And, and I, I've known Mike a long time and I respect his opinion and he and I began to talk. And so he, um, Help me kind of lay out a, a path forward and um, help me get my arms around what to do next. Because while the internet is full of great information, none of it was really talking to me in particular. I can't, you know, w when you're when you're selling a company, you need more than just advice. You need somebody um, to be your uh, counselor, your me mentally, uh, you, you know, therapist. There, there's so much that goes on, and you just can't get that information um, from a web page. So, um, I really leaned on Mike a lot through the process and, um, what he was trying to help me do was to like, Hey, you know, your book's in order. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you have your projections lined up, you know, make a slide deck. And I, you know, how do I make a slide deck? So he, you know, sends me, sends me a, a sample and I, um, you know, and I, so I make a slide deck. And so I had, um, because we had the mortgage reports had been selling leads to not only directly to mortgage lenders, but to these marketplaces that you talk about at times. I had, I had um, contacts, people who, were, who knew our business, who knew me, who, who understood the quality of the work that we were doing, and who were natural buyers. You know, rather than, um, rather than you know, putting out a request, because um, I, I really didn't want the feeling, I, I didn't want to go out there uh, to sell. I wanted to be bought. Because to me, if I, you know, if you're if you're selling, you're not going to get a good price. But if people are coming in to buy you, um, you can command a higher multiple. It, that that's how I looked at it. And so I didn't want to be sold. I wanted to be bought. I reached out to to people who I was already doing business with, and I said, Hey, here's where I'm at, and uh, I'm talking to you know a few companies about this, and I just wanted to gauge your interest. And that was the start of the process. And this was a potential acquisition. Yes. Got it. And how many firms did you, how many of these companies did you go to with that message? Uh, six. Six. And, and of, of that six, how many sort of engaged in a conversation with you? Three. Got it. So you've got three into a conversation. Uh, what do those conversations look like? I mean, are they happening over the phone? Did you go to them? Did they come to you? How did that look? Uh, I insisted on going face to face um, because I know, um, you know, I, I hop, I, I'm, I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, I got on a plane and I flew to um, to each of these companies where they were, and I had to sit down because uh, number one, I I wanted to 
to sell my vision for the company, right? I, I, the cost of a plane ticket and a hotel um, is really nothing compared to the value I was expecting for the site. And you know, even if I'm able to get somebody to increase their offer by even $1,000, that more than pays for my trip. Plus it was a chance for me to practice my pitch. And I, you know, I, I need to say things over and over again to get, to really get the story going. So, um, I went face to face and I had my, uh, my slide deck and I used that as a chance. You know, you command somebody's attention when you're sitting across the table from them, when they're on the phone with you, they're doing other things. Right. So here I was and told my story and, um, and use it as a starting point for conversation. And then what, I mean, you, you paint this picture. Did, did you have, did you put a price on the business? Did you ask them for, for, for expressions of interest? How did that work? My, my next step was to say, you know, I appreciate your time. And I said, um, let's follow up in a few days. I'd like for you to talk with the rest of your team. Um, because we all knew, you know, there already was some interest. So we all knew there was a fit. It just was a matter of what's the price going to be. And then is the price going to be something that, you know, that me as the owner, that something with which I'm comfortable. So I wanted them to sit and to talk about it for a few days. And, and my sense, um, as I, you know, as I left each of the meetings was, you know, the, the longer it takes them to get back with something concrete, you know, obviously the less interest there is. Uh, and that was wrong. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what I thought. Um, but that was incorrect. Um, Why do you say that? It, uh, you know, sometimes people just ideas and, um, they need space to breathe and, uh, people need their own time to do their due diligence. And the, the person who comes back first, you know, immediately that may just be their chance to, to come in and get you to say yes, before you've heard all the other offers. Um, I needed to, to let everything play out. Um, and I'm glad that I did. What was the level of person you were speaking at? Was it the CEO of the other firm or like, what was, who were you talking to? Uh, it depends on, you know, which companies, um, the, in, in every case I was talking with a decision maker, um, may not have necessarily been a CEO, but somebody who was authorized to spend the money. Got it. And so again, did you, did you put a price on it or did you say, come back to me with what you think it's worth? I, I showed my, you know, our, our growth. Um, then I showed my projections for the next three years, um, based on, you know, what I, where I thought, you know, Hey, if this money was, you know, if you invested in this part of the business, here's what you'll get. Um, and so I had my projections for the next three years and I used a, a multiple, um, of the, of what that revenue would be to say, you know, this is the, this is the target price. So you, you gave them a number. Uh, you know, I, I said, here's where we're at. Here's where I expect us to be. And, you know, and I'm looking, you know, comparable companies have sold at a multiple, you know, say 5X or, or 8X or whatever it is. And I said, this is, and this is where I want to be. Got it. So you didn't get that specific, but they could, they could basically do the math pretty quickly to know where your head yes. is at. Got it. Yes. Got it. Got it. And I mean, simply looking at the projections and saying, well, in three years, we expect to be a $5 million business and business of this size sell for whatever multiple, I mean, you're, you're not suggesting that they would pay the full multiple because there's obviously risk baked into that plan, right? That you, you're not guaranteed to grow. It, it, am I right? This is, this is my favorite part. So, you know, during the, during the conversations where, you know, we're, we're first exploring, um, the act, you know, a sale or an acquisition and it was, you know, the first phone call, here's where we're at. And I want to come out and see you. Oh, we love, you know, we love what you guys are doing. You have the, your leads are the best out of everybody. I've never worked with another site that, you know, the mortgage reports has the highest quality mortgage leads on the internet, hands down. And then you go out and you, and you sit and suddenly you're talking about price and you're like, well, you know, 
there are all these other sites that do things pretty well. Well, you know, yeah, the mortgage business has been, you know, mortgage rates have been low, but everyone says the rates are going to climb next year. And there's just a lot of risk. And suddenly, you know, where it's now everybody's negotiating their price and they're telling you that, that your product that they love so much is, well, you're probably not going to make it. So you need us to come in and rescue you. And that, that you know, that's going to happen anyway. And I, I found it to be kind of funny. Um, Did they you get know, into it, your head? No, no, no. I mean, so look, you know, funny thing about the mortgage space. In 2006, uh, all the pundits come out and say mortgage rates are going to uh, be higher next year. And, and it didn't happen. And so in 2007, they say mortgage rates are going to be higher next year. It didn't happen. Same in 2008, 2009. Mortgage rates were on like a seven or eight year decline. And every year, every year, the economists would say the marketplace is going to change. And this is true for every industry, right? Oh, the, you know, the economies come out at the start of the year. They tell you what's going to happen. And they're wrong. They're always wrong. <laughs> they're always wrong. And, and so there it was, you know, I'm like, look, you say that the mortgage rates are going to rise and volume is going to drop. I said, um, the way that we've positioned the site is actually to be interest rate resistant. It doesn't matter what rates are. We're still going to, everything's going to be just fine. Well, there's too much risk. And my argument was really saying, here's why the site is positioned against it. I, you know, turns out rates dropped, have dropped for, you know, again, another four years in a row. Um, the economists and experts were wrong again, but you know, the, when you're about to spend a lot of money on on making an acquisition, of course you're gonna you're gonna say these are our risks and this is what frightens us. Sure. To, so to go back to my point, were you asking to be paid for the full value of the business three years in the future? Uh, I was I was using that as part of my uh, uh, you know this is where I expect it will be. This is why I think you should think it's there too, and that's why this multiple um, is actually great for both of us. Got it. So you you were sort of putting. Uh, you know, a, a mark in the sand saying, Here, here's a point of start of negotiation, knowing that you weren't going to get that full price, but, but at least you put a sort of full price out there. I, I didn't know I wasn't going to, um, but I, you know, I, that was my, that's where I wanted to be um, because that's what I thought that the site could be. Got it. So, so go, for, go from there. So people come back to you. What, do they come back with like letters? Is it informal phone calls? Like what, what does the next step look like? Um, the, you know, is all of the above. And so I had, um, you know, over time I was able to, um, I had, uh, three, uh, offers in writing, um, you know, loose, loosely, um, you know, it wasn't all of the terms, uh, but it was just a kind of a rough idea. And what became really clear was, um, you know, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot of hope for the future that, that each potential acquirer what was taking a defensive position as what if the market bottoms out what what if things go terrible here and um and that's okay you know that's what i expected but as i evaluate you know so i make the phone calls and and um we have follow-up meetings and uh what it what i decided was going to be best um was uh, really to put my money where my mouth was and to say you know i i had a great feeling about where the market was going and i knew what the mortgage reports could do with um with a bigger staff and with more uh, concentration on generating revenue. So um, the term that I, uh, the terms I ultimately decided upon, it was the um, it was the acquirer who, uh, to me, had the best opportunity for a long term um, payout, where the earnout it was an earnout situation um, rather than taking a huge amount of money up front and walking away. Um, we set up a uh, uh, an earnout where. Um, 
the value of the deal was based on the performance of the site. And I was completely comfortable with that idea um, because uh, I really had, I had a lot more faith in the future than, you know, than any of the potential acquirers did. When you say any, so the three offers you had, uh, was it one of the three that you ultimately consummated with, or was there a fourth waiting in the wings? This was, these were, you know, these were the options. My fourth option would have been to, uh, to follow my, my, uh, my high school friend's advice, right? To go ahead and, and find an investor. And I, I just didn't want to do that. So of the three, one was more heavily weighted towards the urine out. There was a, a comfortable upfront figure um, that, uh, that I appreciated. And then there was, um, and then there was the urn out. Yeah. And so uh, the other two, were they all cash offers or were they, you know, okay, give us a sense of what, I, Without, you know, you don't have to get into the details of the numbers, but I'm trying to get a sense of, you know, was one sort of 10% down, 90% earnout weighted, another 50-50, another 70-30? Like, what, what did it look like? That's actually pretty pretty accurate. One of them was nearly all cash up front. Um, and it was a, um, you know, it was a very good number and I could have taken it and just been fine, right? Um, the second one was a, um, was kind of a, a medium, or you know, small to um, medium size upfront number, and then a declining earnout over time, such that um, the first year would have you know more revenue to me um, versus the second year versus the third year. Um, the third one was just a um, you know, it was a again a small to medium upfront figure, but I you know was comfortable with it and a steady earnout over time, which allowed me you know I knew that. Um, the, that the the third year of the um, relation, the third year of the uh, earnout would be um, just as strong as the first, and so to me that was very important. And, and, it, and that, it ended up being that, that you went with the last one that was uh, yes. small upfront payment with a heavy emphasis towards the earnout. As you look at the total compensation you pulled out of this deal, including the upfront payment and the earnout. Um, how did the final figures compare now, knowing what, you know, three years later, uh, w you know, was the, the all cash offer ultimately less money than you, you ultimately took out of the deal? If so, kind of by what factor? Um, looking back, uh, I, you know, not only chose the, the right, uh, acquire for the, for the, um, compensation, it ended up being, um, three or four times what the all cash offer was. Um, but you know, it was a, it's a company of people that, um, I, who I respect and who I trust, um, and you know, not just, you know, beyond the, beyond the dollars of it, um, they, they're, they're just wonderful people. And we had a great working relationship for the, you know, the period of during the earnout, And, and I appreciated that. I don't, I'm sure things would have been fine with any of the, you know, any of the other potential acquirers, but. Um, it really was a terrific situation for everybody. You know, the site ended up even out earning the projections that I had for it, which everybody said were too optimistic. And I thought they were optimistic, but we've ended up passing um, even the most aggressive numbers. The, there was there was more revenue paid to everybody. We all like everybody came out ahead. And uh, it was, it was, you know, it worked out uh, terrific. The acquirer uh, was a company called Full Beaker. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So, 
you know, you've just made uh, Built to Sell Radio history. I think I've done now a hundred episodes of this show, and and you uh, have the uh, you know have the first good story about an earnout. So congratulations! You have uh, <laughs> there's a a small token prize for you at the end of the call. No I'm kidding, uh, fantastic. <laughs> Obviously, we do hear more sort of negative stories about earnouts, but but this is great. I'm thrilled that you've got the sort of counterbalancing story uh, because I think people could certainly learn from from the experience. So so why did it work? Like what is it that that you did that so many others don't do in structuring their earnout? I I don't think it was something I did. I think it's something that Full Beaker did. And um, Full Beaker is a is a tremendous company. It's a um, it's a small group. Uh, the the company owner is uh, a wonderful businessman and tactician, and he, I think the reason why the earnout worked in our case, in both of our cases, was that um, Fullbeaker continued to invest in the site after its acquisition. It, it didn't. It wasn't. It wasn't buying the mortgage reports to kill it. Um, it was buying it to build it into something more. And so were and, those contractual obligations that you had structured, that were they required to invest in the site? A little bit. Um, but, you know, anybody can honor a contract while still not keeping by the spirit of it, right? Um, and the, the way that Full Beaker um, approached the asset after they bought it, we were in full-on growth mode. Um, and it was an opportunity for them to, to put some money behind uh, a product that, they believed in, and they did. And so we, you know, my role after that was to provide um, strategy and insight and to train their team. And that's what, you know, that's, that's what we did. And so our contractual obligations over the period of three years was that uh, Full Beaker was gonna continue to put resource behind the site and I was going to continue to um, give time, effort, and energy to help them do more. Was it, and so, did you get specific? Like, was it X amount of resources or Y number of hours of your time? Um, kind of, you know, it was, you know, again, it, it, it was a lot of, um, it was a lot of just good faith. We're all going to do this together and we're going to make it work. There, there were contractual terms, but you know, it's not like, uh, if they, if, if I said, um, Hey, full beaker, you need to, um, you need to hire six people around this and they only hired five that I would, you know, it would be a, a big problem. You know, that wasn't it. It, it really, what I was doing and, and what they were doing was just keeping in the spirit of um, we're trying to build something great, so so let's do that together. And so we're how I mean how did how did you build that trust? I mean, was your interface with the CEO this person that you trusted and, and felt to be an honorable business person, or or did did he or she delegate that relationship over time to someone on the Full Beaker team? Um, I had direct relationships with everybody there and I, and I spent a, a lot of time in their offices. Um, I, you know, I commuted out to, uh, to their offices, uh, just outside of Seattle and, and did FaceTime, um, with them as frequently as, as was reasonable. And, and, um, you know, it, it, uh, I, I, it's funny you say that this earnout worked and many of them don't. Um, uh, my hunch is that the difference between a, a good earnout situation, a bad one really is the, you know, is the interest of all the parties into, into continuing to back a product, right? You don't want to tie your, your future revenue to somebody else's whim. Um, but here, you know, we all had a goal together and, uh, that was part of the partnership. It wasn't, 
it wasn't necessarily contractual. It was just good for business. But I guess, I guess, I guess there's a lot of people listening who, you know, a lot of buyers will say all the right things to owners, right? <laughs> They'll say, oh yeah, your product is strategic or, oh, we think your company is wonderful. Or, oh, we want to adopt these best practices and we think your culture is amazing. But then, you know, when the, when the acquisition happens, those promises fade away or the team that made the promises more frequently, uh, goes on to the next acquisition and the team that inherits the promises have, you know, no intent on honoring them. Well, like, I mean, in your case, I find it fascinating that that was not the way it all shook out. How did you vet their claim that they wanted to invest in the product? I mean, did you just go on faith or was there something they said or did that made you confident that they actually were prepared to honor their commitments? Um, so, you know, again, I, I had a I had a working relationship with them before the acquisition. I approached people that I knew. Um, and, you know, I'll say specifically, there was two companies that I didn't uh, approach who I knew um, because I wasn't it wasn't where I wanted to be affiliated. So I I knew uh, of Full Beaker. I spent time um, building relationships with people in their office. And, um, you know, I yeah, maybe it, maybe I'm you know fortunate, uh, but I think I had, um, you know, we all did in, in the transaction. We all had an interest in and seeing this work out and, uh, and everybody put their best effort behind it. Let me ask you a different way, different way. If an entrepreneur was coming to you for advice, uh, who'd been given a, a heavily weighted earnout deal, 20% down 80% on the earnout, what advice would you give that entrepreneur before they sign that deal? <laughs> um, know who you're doing business with. How would I know who I'm doing business with? <laughs> I may, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for uh, practical, like tactical things that, that people listening to this can go do like really tangible, like what can they do? Like, should, like really specific examples. Um, let me turn around and make it about me for a second. Um, cause I could, that, that may be easier here. Um, I probably wouldn't have engaged in a, in a long-term arrangement like this. Um, if I, if I didn't, you know, if I hadn't broken bread with the company owner, if I didn't, if I didn't know them very well, and, and I'm married to an attorney, uh, and uh, my attorney wife uh, hated this idea, right? She's 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 seen too many of these things go wrong, and uh, what I kept saying to her was, I you know what, like I know these guys, um, they're acquiring this asset because it can be a cornerstone for their business, and they're going to put stuff behind it, and, and maybe that's maybe that's the point. If you're being acquired um, as an add-on or as a feature, uh, there's probably less a less a chance that you're going to make it long term than if you're being acquired as the main product. And um, while Full Beaker had other mortgage lead generation websites that they were operating at the time, um, the mortgage reports would have been, you know, was instantly their largest and probably had the largest future. And so I was confident that they weren't going to turn their backs on it because. Number one, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't cheap to acquire. And number two, it probably had the most potential out of all of the, the products that they were running in the mortgage space at the time. Now, I'm, 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 uh, I don't know that for certain. I never asked about their other businesses, but, um, you know, maybe that's why it worked. They, they had no choice but to back this product. It wasn't a throwaway. It was actually important to their business. You're still married? 
Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> what did your wife insist, given even, even in light of all of this overwhelming sort of <laughs> gut reaction that you thought they were being genuine, what, what did your wife insist that the earnout included in the way of protection for you? Um, verbiage. Like what was, on... what was the divorce <laughs> <laughs> creating a, a event here? Like if you don't include this, Dan, it's like, I'm going to leave. She, uh, you know, she's like, I compl- I trust you completely. You know, you definitely know what you're doing, but you know, and I get that all the time, but make sure this is in there. Um, she wanted there to be uh, specific notes about uh, what Full Beaker will do over the course of the three-year earnout, including employees, including investment, et cetera. Um, and, you know, the same way that Full Beaker insisted that, um, that I give X amount of hours per week and that, I, um, and that I travel to their office, you know, X times per month. Uh, and that was, you know, that was it. And I'll, and I'll tell you this, you know, th- those, were, those were details that were included in the contract but neither party was necessarily interested in enforcing the 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 granularity of that. It really was the spirit of the contract that we all want to grow this business. And that just comes from knowing your acquirer, I think. It sounds like an amazing experience. I mean, especially in light of the fact that you you were able to net three or four times what you would have gotten had you uh, accepted the uh, the heavier cash offer. And so again, uh, hats off to to you and Full Beaker for for that earnout. Thanks. What, what was the toughest part? It sounds like a lot of good things, but what was the toughest part of the earnout? Um, you know, uh, the last eight months uh, were were a big challenge, and, and I even say, um, I, I I think like many of your uh, like many of your listeners, John, I, I'm a um, I'm a doer. I'm a maker. I don't sit still very well. Um, I need to constantly be uh, doing, I need to be doing something. I need to be growing. And um, after about two years, two and a half years, it became clear that we had, you know, between Full Beaker and me, we had, we had completed all of our knowledge transfer, right? Everything that, everything I knew I had shared Um, the meetings when I would, I'd go out to, to, um, you know, my contractually obligated meetings, I would go and sit in the office and, um, and I would have a meeting over the course of two days, maybe, or two meetings. And that would be it. Like there wasn't, there wasn't much for me to do anymore. And contractually I was, you know, I'm still obligated to this, to this deal. And so every, you know, every month my, my bank account would get hit with, um, with, uh, you know, the, the earn out and it was wonderful. It was wonderful, except I wasn't doing anything and I, and I got very antsy. So, um, you know, I start to look for other, like, what else can I, what other things can I do? And I begin looking at other businesses that are, that are not in the lead generation space because I can't enter into those businesses while I'm, uh, well, you know, while I'm still in my earnout phase. And, and it was very hard. And I, I begin, you know, I hired a, a company to, um, I did patent research on a, on a toothpaste product because my kids, you know, I was frustrated they weren't brushing their teeth at night. Uh, every time. So I, you know, I did a patent research into a special kind of toothpaste that changes flavors when you've reached the 30 second brushing mark. And I, and, and I, you know, and I go ahead and I, and I started researching these things. 
I, I looked into a, a, a deli meat slicer. Could you make an automatic deli meat slicer so that when you go to the supermarket, you don't have to wait in, in line for deli meats. There's a, a machine, it has the meats in it and it's filled with an inert gas. And you say you want a pound of turkey and it slices it. And I'm, these are all like great ideas. And I, and, I, and I keep like moving ahead with these ideas and I'm talking to attorneys. And are I you sure like, you're still married? Just, just oh my <laughs> gosh. So, and, and I had this, this uh, a travel website and this, this idea because I wanted to go on a vacation with my wife and I didn't care where we went. I just wanted to go somewhere warm. So, hey, it's January. Where can I fly from Cincinnati where it's warm? And that's all I wanted to put into a search engine. Like I couldn't get that. So I'm like, maybe I should develop that. And I keep doing all these small things because I, I have nowhere to direct all of my entrepreneurial energy. Right. And, uh, and my wife, you know, so patient and, and lets me see all these things through. And finally she, she says to me, she's like, look, you keep looking up all these ideas. You're going into toothpaste makers and you're doing meat slicers and travel websites. She says, the thing, the thing that you're really good at, you're good at lead generation. Why don't you just, why don't you do that? You're good at it. Your contract will be up and you'll do lead generation because you know that business and you're good at it. And I said, um, you know, you could have told me that nine months ago and saved us, uh, <laughs> saved us a good bit of money I spent on patent attorneys. She's just stick to what you're really good at. And, um, and yeah, so, uh, here I am and my, my earnout is over and that's what I've done. I started a new company doing lead generation and I'm having a wonderful time with it. Huh. What's, what's the name of the new company? Where do people find it's Groella, Groella.com. So we are, uh, we've just launched and, uh, we've got a, a team I'm using, um, you know, the, I'm using funds from the, uh, from the sale of the mortgage reports and I've used that to, uh, to get us, off the ground, we've got a, a full-size team here and we are we are moving forward. It's exciting stuff. And so mortgage leads or what kinds of leads? Uh, not mortgage leads. Uh, that is also part of my original contract. So um, we are not in the mortgage business, but we do um, money and real estate, insurance, uh, career and jobs. Um, really what, what we're focusing on is, uh, it's the same message that I was putting out with the mortgage reports, which was, you know, you provide relevant, timely information to people who, who need help moving to the next step of whatever it is they're doing. And so we're specifically targeting the current generation. Um, as I've been told our site, well, you know, you teach people how to adult. That was actually the expression and that, that's what we're doing. So we're, we're, um, we're attacking the, um, the really important stuff that, uh, the current generation is not getting as advice from their parents, um, as maybe, you know, older generations, you know, financial stuff was passed down from parent to child. That's not happening anymore. Dan, where can people find the site, you on the internet? What's the best place for them to go? Uh, Groella.com. Dan Green, thank you so much for joining us. John, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R 
I-L-L-O-W.